Welcome to episode 116 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and I'm joined today by one of our uh, uh, regular uh, guests, uh, uh, Dmitry Alperovich, uh, who is the CTO and co-founder of uh, CrowdStrike. Welcome, Dmitry. Thanks so much. Uh, and uh, also Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, welcome, Michael. Good to be here. And uh, um, Roger Warren, who is a newbie on the, uh, the podcast, uh, but uh, uh, the chairman emeritus of Steptoe & Johnson, a partner in our uh, Washington office, a litigator and uh, an expert in some of the uh, malpractice issues that are likely to be raised by cybersecurity. So we'll uh, welcome Roger. Thank you. Okay, I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump right in. We have a new intellectual property law, uh, and I think the real question about this, uh, uh, the Trade Secrets Act, uh, uh, Trade Secrets Theft Act, is uh, do we really need it? Uh, Michael, uh, what's the story on this uh, uh, this new intellectual property law at the federal level? Yeah, it's called the Defend Trade Secrets Act of 2016. This has been bubbling up for a while, and what it basically does is amend the Economic Espionage Act to create a private civil cause of action uh, for trade secret misappropriation. Um, the Economic Espionage, uh, as it had existed, provided only for criminal prosecutions of trade secret theft, but now companies that are the victims of uh, theft of their trade secrets can go after the um, culprit on their own and and get injunctive relief, monetary damages, and in extraordinary circumstances, they can even uh, get a court court to authorize ex-party seizure uh, orders to prevent dissemination of a a trade secret. Um, So... You know, I think this is going to be useful. There, there have been uh, causes of action available under state laws, but um, you know the the, uh, the terms varied, and I think they they were not uh, used very frequently. But um, we'll have to wait and see how how helpful these are to victims of trade secret thefts. I think you know along the lines of uh, the theory you've you've espoused for a while of of going after the beneficiaries of of hacking. Um, uh, you know, this could be another tool in that in that toolbox. Yeah, Dimitri, uh, Dimitri will, do, will do the attribution and we'll bring the retribution, right? Happy to help. <laughs> well, it will be interesting because there is a question whether we really needed this because the Uniform Trade Secrets Act had done a pretty good job. But uh, uh, I'm sure now that there's a federal law that uh, there'll be a lot of interesting federal jurisprudence uh, arising out of it. Um, the other uh, shoe has now dropped on the legal profession. Uh, we are uh, um, uh, we've been worried about law firm cybersecurity for many years, and we've been uh, getting reports that there have been lots of compromises of law firms uh, over the last couple of years. And now, of course, comes uh, uh, the retribution, uh, the litigation, the class action. Uh, uh, the Edelson Law Firm has announced uh, that they're planning uh, a class action. I don't know, have, uh, Roger, have we actually seen the complaint? No, the complaint, according to the uh tweet filed by uh, Jay Edelson was that it was filed under seal, but that they would seek to make it available. As of last Friday, it still wasn't yet available. 
uh, it's seldom that people announce their filing of a lawsuits by tweets, but that's what happened in this case. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I'm, I can think of lots of reasons why you might tweet this <laughs> and tweet the fact that it's under seal and uh, probably advertise that you're taking settlement offers already right. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, so that you can revise the, uh, uh, the complaint to drop a few defendants. Uh, well, as described, it seems to be only against, at this point, one defendant, but we're not sure what's unique about that defendant. It was described as a Chicago-based law firm, and there are a lot of very good-sized, uh, historically Chicago-based sure. law firms that have offices throughout the world. So unless until it's uh, made uh, public, it's hard to know exactly what the allegations are. The... Uh, the people have been predicting for at least four or five years that law firms would be subject to suits like that. Uh, there was a law review article, American University Law Review, uh, uh, four years ago entitled Hacker's Delight, Law Firm Risks and the Liability in the Cyber Age. In 2011, the FBI held a meeting with more than 80 AMLAW 100 firms indicating that they had been hacked at that point. I, re- uh, I, I remember one of the uh, uh, one of the guys who sat in on that meeting talked to the uh, FBI agent uh, who described going in to meet with the head of the law firm to say, uh, well, we've got this intrusion. Uh, and at the end, as as he was leaving, uh, the FBI agent turned to the head of the law firm and said, uh, so uh, when are you going to notify your clients? And the uh, head of the law firm said, I haven't even decided whether to notify my partners. <laughs> well, and I think that's been a common response. Uh, the, the two most recent uh, public announcements of hacking by Cravath and Weil Gottschall about a month ago, uh, at least in that case, Cravath acknowledged that in the preceding summer, the summer of 2015, it, there had been an intrusion. At that point, uh, maybe since it's changed, Weil Gottschall was not uh, publicly acknowledging it. And the FBI has said it's not their job to tell law firms what their obligations are, ethical or legal, with respect to notification so they, of they, their clients. they'll just stay out of it, uh, right, right. Uh, which makes sense, because uh, uh, they really would like to be involved in the uh, case, and if they start forcing people to disclose to their their clients, uh, that'll be the last case they get called in. Well, and I think as you look into this, the issues that uh, arise in connection with the law firm hacking are very different than those that arise in, con- in connection with a consumer products company like a Target or something like that. So there's like not very that. much personally identifiable information at risk. Well, th- there isn't except with respect to their own employees, and right. there's a fair amount of that. And you would have medical information with respect to the insurance on their own employees. A- and depending on the kind of law firm that you were, for example, if you were an employment law firm, where you were either defending against employment suits or prosecuting employment suits, you may, in fact, have a significant amount of personal employment or health data. <laughs> what I like about this is that it's, uh, it creates a disincentive for the class action bar to, to, to get really tough on this because they're the ones most likely to have boatloads of personally identifiable well, information. Well, it would be interesting to see if how many of those class action plaintiff's firms have themselves been the subject of a cyber intrusion. So uh, it, what are the I, – I guess this is – mainly a lawsuit based on the canons of ethics, right? That uh, you fail to carry out some ethical obligation well, either to... Well, I, I think it's actually more than that because many clients have now started in their terms of engagement, particularly sophisticated cor- uh, corporate clients. You must tell me. They, they, they would require that the law firm meet certain standards with respect to their uh, security protections. And in fact, many of those clients will actually audit the law firm. And in some instances, law firms have been non-renewed or 
are ca- is canceled from the client list because they were fa- uh, they failed to demonstrate that they had adequate protections. So that's one area, which is the client requires a certain level of protection. If you fail to meet that, you can have violated the terms of retention. A second is simply common law negligence. Uh, these cases have not yet been brought. But the standard with respect to legal malpractice is typically that a lawyer would deviate from the standard of care of a reasonably prudent lawyer. Uh, the ABA has recently modified its ethics requirements to require that lawyers be familiar with uh, electronic technology and its changes. And so at some point, I think it's confident that a, a client will claim that they deviated, the law firm deviated from the standard of care of a reasonably present law firm. I, I, all of that makes sense, but that's, you know, if you're a client, even and if you've written a letter like this, you're a pretty sophisticated client with a pretty big uh, uh, representation with uh, the uh, uh, the law firm, that you have so many remedies that are probably more attractive than litigation. Because, uh, well, well, so well, I, I, think I, I, I wonder if, you know, uh, if we're really going to see litigation uh, by individual clients over this, unless they feel they are forced to do it. Well, I think you're right, Stuart, because it depends on the nature of the intrusion. One of the problems that uh, many of the law firms who have been advised before that they were previously unaware that there had been an intrusion and they were advised and learned for the first instance from the FBI telling them. But all they learned was that there was an intrusion and they really could not determine with any degree of sophistication what client files, if any, had been looked at, if anything had been done with them. And so you've got the possibility, if it's a insider trading case, that nothing would have happened to the files other than knowledge. And then the, act, the illegal activity takes, care, takes place outside, which is insider trading. If you're trying to hedge on a, uh, a public military secret, uh, a lot of times law firms will have people within their midst yeah. that have security clearances. They are working with government contractors on military secrets. The injury could be to the military establishment and the competitors in foreign governments. But how you would be able to prove that without a, a tracking mechanism that I'm sure Dimitri is about to invent. Uh, but <laughs> he's, he's already got it. In fact, the problem is the, the more Dimitri's stuff you deploy, the more likely it is you know exactly what they did. Uh, and uh, uh, law firms may prefer to be ignorant and be able to say, well, we were intruded upon, but we don't know exactly. So we're not, we're not going to presume that every secret that our clients have is is uh, disclosed. Well, one of the risks, though, Stuart, goes beyond clients. It goes to the law firm itself, which is the cost that law firms have to incur when there has been evidence of an intrusion. And at least one instance, there's been acknowledgement that there was a, a cyber extortion of a law firm in which the law firm, in fact, paid a seven-figure settlement to free up its files. So apart from your obligations wow. to your clients and to your employees and to those whose data you have, there are problems for the law firm itself in running its own business. So I, I did promise uh, Dimitri that we would talk about ransomware. So this is a, that's a great introduction, but I want to hold it so we finish the, uh, uh, the news roundup. So do you think there's a future for... Um, class actions uh, against law firms for this kind of thing? Whether there's a future for class actions, hard to know. My crystal ball is broken, but the Supreme Court will provide some guidance on this with respect to some issues likely this term. But the, the issue is proving damages. And, and as you know, Stuart, in yeah. class actions, one of the problems you have is proving the plaintiff's proving typicality of the named plaintiffs. 
And it's going to be difficult in many of these circumstances, unlike a target or one of those circumstances, to prove the typicality of the plaintiff with respect to a law firm hack. Yeah. Uh, and so that's an issue. But it seems to me that at least from what I read in the press as to what the plaintiff's bar is attempting to do is they're attempting to get injunctions. They're attempting to get injunctions which would require a certain level of protection imposed upon the law firm. Which leads to the, their collection of fees. Stewart, how insightful. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, the, the difference between getting a, a, an order to sin no more and fees and uh, an offer of coupons and fees, you know, for the, uh, for the allegedly harmed individuals, there's not much difference there. There probably isn't. So the, we just saw a case uh, in which Zappos was the subject of a, uh, a uh, class action for a breach that kind of got the, illustrated some of those things, didn't it, Michael? Yeah, it did. You know, the, the, the issue here, the key issue, uh, was one that has divided the courts, and that's whether you have to actually allege um, identity theft or fraud rather than just the fear of future identity theft or fraud or you know, some sort of loss in the value of your personal information due to the fact that, that it was breached. And, and the court came down on the conservative side of that dispute and held that absent actual identity theft or fraud, uh, plaintiffs don't have standing. Uh, and so it, it, it basically rejected the theory that if your information is breached, it somehow is devalued. Um, and, and that's, I think, probably now the majority view, although there right, have been and some And that's, a, that's that like a 98% reduction in the fearsomeness of a class action, because I'm guessing that only 2% of uh, victims actually see identity theft, even if their data really is stolen. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the percentage is, but it is definitely a very small minority, at least judging by the, the reported uh, cases. Um, there was one positive aspect for uh, the plaintiffs, and that that is basically that for those plaintiffs that do allege some sort of concrete uh, actual fraud, um, the court basically will presume that it's traceable to the, the breach of the defendant company, uh, and it's up to the defendant to bear the burden of showing that um, the the fraud was actually a result of some other breach. Yep. Okay. Well, so one of the big vectors for infection uh, is a failure to patch Android systems, uh, and there have been lots of complaints and finger pointing in all directions. Carriers, manufacturers, Google, uh, uh, over who's supposed to be um, ensuring that uh, Android devices get security patches promptly. And now uh, that finger pointing and uh, conflict has been exported to the federal government because both the FTC and the FCC have ridden to the rescue, uh, announcing they're going to solve the problem by launching what they described, uh, the FTC described it kind of delicately, I thought, as uh, uh, separate studies of security in the mobile ecosystem by the FTC and the FCC. Um, the FTC. TC was invited to uh, testify uh, on that, uh, I, and uh, I, I, you really have to read their testimony. It, it uh, butter wouldn't melt in the FTC's mouth as they describe how much they know about privacy and how they're going to help. You know the cute little FCC's efforts to uh, do something about privacy. Forty years late to the game, uh, I, I think they say. Um, I've, I've got it here. Uh, in response to the FCC's request for a comment, 
on its proposed rules governing the privacy of consumer information collected by broadband Internet access services. This is a little separate from the mobile uh, um, inquiry, but uh, the FCC has published privacy uh, rules for uh, uh, broadband access. Uh, the FTC announces is carefully considering the proposal and it will uh, file comments uh, with the FCC based on our decades of experience and leadership on consumer privacy issues. We believe the commission can provide unique insights to the poor little FCC. Well, they didn't say poor little, but you can read that uh, in yourself, uh, uh, which is astonishing in light of the fact that uh, for all the discussion of 40 years of privacy leadership, there's not one mention of the FTC ever asking for comment on any of its security standards because they never have. Uh, I, and I, I will uh, repeat something I've said about the FTC uh, before. They have proceeded on the basis of informal guidance. You're supposed to guess uh, uh, which of their proposals, uh, which of their statements actually set security standards. Uh, uh, and now they're starting to find that some of their old ones, uh, they have guidance that says, be sure to uh, change your pa- force your employees to change their passwords frequently. Uh, that might have been good guidance in 2007, but uh, uh, most people, including the uh, chief technical officer of the FTC have said that doesn't make sense. So did the uh, uh, GCHQ security experts. Um, And the FTC has no way of withdrawing that guidance comfortably because they never published it in the first place. So uh, they're just going to memory hole it is my prediction. They'll just stop talking about it. And then at some point they'll say, well, you should have known from our later guidance that that guidance had been overtaken by events. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I hope the FCC responds to this uh, um, comment uh, on their reg by saying, thank you. When you publish regs, we'll be very interested in your uh, uh, contribution to our regulation, but until then, um, we're not sure that your 40 years of security leadership is doing us a lot of good. I'm sure OPM would be interested in that, too, in light of their breach. Uh, yes, I, I'm sure they would. Uh, uh, well, you know, uh, but the FTC's job is shooting the wounded, not really <laughs> providing guidance to people who uh, who need it. Uh, all right, uh, any other uh, uh Stories we ought to cover, uh, Michael. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of little stuff. Uh, um, uh, the SEC is still fighting ECPA reform, notwithstanding the the unanimous uh, decision of, uh, of the House to to pass the warrant requirement. Uh, um, uh, so maybe they'll be able to at least slow that. Uh, uh, that warrant requirement down for access to uh, the contents of communications, but I'm guessing uh, it's a rear guard action at this point. All right. Um, then, then the other news items that I wanted to cover, I wanted to talk to Dimitri in particular about, which is uh, the the SWIFT and Bangladesh uh, uh, and now Vietnamese bank uh, um, uh, intrusions, which really. Um, look like APT, essentially, advanced persistent threat. They got in, they watched really closely, they figured out exactly how people were handling and securing their transactions and how to beat the system and then 
proposed to beat it. Uh, and uh, But for their inability to spell, would have done a very good job uh, on Bangladesh. Uh, um, there's now some indication that these intrusions are government-sponsored and tied to the Sony attacks, uh, uh, which would mean that there's one government that's sponsoring them, which is North Korea. Um, some pretty interesting stuff out of uh, the security uh, forensics teams that have looked at this. Uh, what's your sense about uh, what we really know about uh, these attacks on on the banking system? Well, I, I think it's too early to talk about attribution there to North Korea. Um, the connections, frankly, are pretty tenuous right now, so I would have very low confidence at this point with the information that's available. So they, that were, is, they were using exactly <clears throat> the same encryption keys. They were using the, the tools and techniques that are unusual. They could have all been borrowed. If you were determined to make it look like the North Koreans, you probably could have stolen all that stuff, figured out how the North Korean attack on Sony went, and... Uh, uh, design this to look like it, but you you would be assuming you were going to get caught, and maybe you would. I guess if you're going to move the money, you know you're going to get uh, a deep forensic look afterwards. Uh, so you think the, the the there's a real possibility that this was uh, sort of false flag. Well, not not even that, but um, the overlap um, with the techniques uh, that were used in Sony was actually pretty limited and, and specific to sort of cleaning up and the wiping of, of the logs and everything else, which, you know, if you're a criminal um, group that's looking at ways you can delete data and you do a Google search, you may find lots of detailed analysis of how it was done in Sony. You may just copy it, not for the purposes of false flagging, but, hey, here's a good technique for how to do this. Would you borrow their... their- uh, 16 or 25 character encryption key, though, you know. Possibly, possibly. So I, I, I think more, more needs to be done um, in terms of an, analyzing that. But the attack itself was actually uh, very sophisticated. And what was most interesting about it is how deeply they understood the internal processes of the bank. Right. One of the things that was most fascinating to me was not only have they figured out how the SWIFT system works, how to uh, fake the messages um, into the payment network, but they also knew that Part of the process at the bank was actually to print all the transactions, and they actually modified the PDF viewer that was used to view those transactions and send them to the printer. So, so it, it actually modified them before it printed them? Exactly oh right. My so they, God. they literally <laughs> substituted a program that was being used to take in the transactions, process them as PDFs, and spit them out to the printer, and they modified it so that they would specifically uh, delete the transactions that were related to the ones that the criminals were in- initiating, and they would also correctly update the balance so that you wouldn't see that a billion dollars just went out of the bank uh, wow. bank account. So that was uh, very, very sophisticated, very fa- uh, fascinating to watch. And my personal guess is that there probably was some inside help uh, to, to help them understand what the processes were, because this is not just cyber reconnaissance that would easily tell you this. So, it, it, and that does suggest that they, they got into the system and they spent months in the system watching exactly how people were working and then designed tools to cover up their tracks. That's right. Or they had someone on the inside that was guiding them along the way. Which, it's, it's not impossible for both of those things to be true, right? Uh, in fact, you would think that that would make sense, that at some point you're going to want to compromise an individual so that uh, uh, you can interview him or get him to bring more stuff in. Uh, uh, and uh, when we're talking 80 million or a billion, uh, at that point, um, finding a way to compromise individuals is not that hard. Yeah, and, and they try to extract a, uh, a billion dollars uh, from the Federal Reserve account uh, that the Bangladesh uh, Bank had at the New York Fed. 
but uh, they only managed to do 81 million. And, and that they, was because of a typo, right? Uh, because because of a typo in the company name that triggered uh, concern on the part of the New York Fed, and they stopped the transfer. But uh, aside from that, uh, there's no indication that uh, they wouldn't have been successful otherwise. Have you seen anything about the Vietnamese bank that uh, also suffered an intrusion? Uh, uh, is it the same uh, um, technique, uh, or uh, are we learning something from what the Vietnamese bank has been able to tell us? There are some similarities, but it's really to say that it's the same group. You could very well have a number of groups that are infiltrating banks and following uh, the same. I think there was, the there was a suggestion that uh, the the Forensics guys found at least three different sets of intruders in one of the banks. Exactly right, exactly right. But also pretty sophisticated in terms of how the cleanup was done. They managed to not only um, remove the transactions, they went directly into the SWIFT database to alter all the balances correctly. So a lot of covering the track that was wow. done, uh, which, you know, typically you see these operations, they're smash and grab, get the data and get out, not stay around for a while, make sure everything looks looks kosher and that uh, nothing is going to be noticed. This is, this is, this is, what I always feared most, that uh, people were going to be able to break into the big back-end systems and uh, adapt to them, learn how to uh, uh, scam them, and then take just enormous hauls. Uh, 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 American Express and Visa's back-end fraud stuff uh, is critical to making the system work, and uh, it's easy to screw up once you have access to the computers in the back-end. You know, the one weakness of all these schemes, though, is that the money is going to go out at some point. So even if you fake all the records, at some point, reconciliation is going to find there's a billion dollars missing. And ultimately, you're going to be able to go back to SWIFT and other systems and find where it went. Right. So tracking the money is still going to be one of the best ways to actually find these criminals. And in the case of um, uh, the Vietnamese bank, there were actually eight banks in, in across um, Asia and some in Europe um, that they were trying to get the funds to. And uh, presumably you could, uh, with law enforcement's help, to actually actually determine who owns these accounts and track it all the way uh, down to the recipients. So I, I am not generally a big enthusiast for uh, norms in cyberspace, but if there's any norm that I think we could probably now get uh, support internationally for, it's that every institution, every uh, country has an enormous interest in having the financial system work and not be scammed this way. Uh, and so uh, finding, uh, creating a norm or even a, an agreement that says we're all going to help each other to track these sons of bitches down once they start and to punish them, uh, that strikes me as entirely plausible as an outcome from some of these attacks. I agree. And, you know, actually in the financial space, uh, all of the Know Your Customer regulations um, that are being tightened up as yes. a result of Panama Papers are going to help with that as well as more transparency is uh, put forward in the financial system. It's going to be harder and harder to actually monetize these these frauds. Yeah, great. Uh, that, well, that's great. That's that, that's good news. Uh, so I know uh, we wanted to talk about ransomware, and uh, uh, somebody said it's, uh, it is to 2016 what uh, uh, China was to 2015. That was me. Uh, that was you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I, yeah, it's it, – it, it's everywhere, but I, when I tried to figure out how big a financial impact it's had, 
I struggled a little to, uh, you know, the FBI said uh, last year, I think, oh my goodness, we've had uh, a thousand people have, have made complaints that they've been subjected to ransomware, which frankly is not a very scary thing. It's like $18 million is what they uh, suggested it cost uh, users. Now, those are only the people who went to the FBI, which is most, uh, really a distinct minority of the uh, people who are victimized. Uh, uh, but how big a problem is this? Well, it's hard to, to estimate right now, um, um, but uh, one of the th- this is actually related to the uh, topic we've just discussed because one of the things that the criminals have figured out is that extracting financial money through the uh, standard banking system is their Achilles heel that can be traced. So on comes Bitcoin, uh, uh, yeah. an untraceable way to receive payments, and that's when we've really seen huge pickup on ransomware, and particularly in the last couple of years where they've realized that um, the, the idea for ransomware has actually existed for 25 years. One of the first viruses that kind of encrypted your hard drive and asked for payment uh, was back in 1989, wow. but they never really flourished because it was very easy to discover who the payment is going to. With the rise of Bitcoins, um, it was uh, really a perfect storm of here we can distribute the, these, uh, this malware through botnets, uh, compromise literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands probably at this point, users and corporations, encrypt all their data, and then ask for ransom through it's, Bitcoin. It's, it's so much better in terms of monetizing a compromise. You've got a compromise where you either can get uh, two cents worth of uh, credit card information or – $500 worth of Bitcoin for the ransomware, it's obvious that you're going to want to choose ransomware. And it's so fast. You know, one of the uh, these schemes actually only gives you 48 hours to, right. pay, to pay or, or they destroy the keys and move on, which uh, tells you a lot about how this has become sort of a machine where they're just processing victims left and right. And if you don't pay, they don't care. They move on. The other thing that uh, we're seeing is a lot of people are paying. And um, this is sort of like uh, Glenn Gehrig and Gross where – you become the, the valuable leads, right? You, you've shown the propensity for pain. Oh, and so now, you pay again, and you pay and again. And now they're going to hit you again and again and again. And the ransom is getting more and more sophisticated. Uh, one of the recommendations um, against um, for protecting yourself against ransomware taxes have backups. Well, guess what? These ransomware families are now, first thing they do is destroy your backups. Um, so it's becoming very, very painful, and we're seeing... Uh, organizations across the board, police departments, hospitals, oh, yeah. and ransom. Uh, it's it's pretty striking. So, um, how is it spreading? Is, are, is it still spreading through phishing with uh, attachments, or uh, have people moved to ad tech uh, to uh, to add? Uh, um, uh, you know, basically to do malvertising uh, on folks. Uh, I, I did see the one where, uh, you know, if you went to Huffington Post and you saw a Hugo Boss ad, you were pwned. Uh, I, and they, uh, Crypto Wall, I think, used that once. Um, but I, I don't know what the vectors are. Well, uh, they're spreading every which way. And you now have, I think, probably almost every criminal group uh, in Eastern Europe that's jumping into this game because they're reali- realizing what a lucrative um, uh, reward you can get there. So we, we're now at over 30 different ransomware families, and new ones appearing literally every week. Wow. And it's so easy to write. Literally, first-year sure. computer science students can write one overnight and then go to um, your traditional cybercrime guys that have botnets, that uh, have exploit kits, and just tell them, hey, I'll pay you X, y, X amount of money to distribute is, is, it. A botnet is not worth anything compared to being able to compromise all those machines. Right? Well, uh, exactly. So um, nowadays, when you have botnets, you basically sell them for various purposes, um, 
to distribute phishing um, uh, attacks or to distribute um, uh, malware directly onto the victims. And you have these ransom authors that wrote uh, a piece of ransom overnight, set up a Bitcoin wallet, and literally, you know, for a thousand dollars, would distribute it to ten thousand people. And even if a small percentage pays, you, you've got a huge return, literally within days. Wow. And um, it is in New China. It, <laughs> Yes, but what do you do if you're called? I mean, this, uh, you know, all the sanctimonious jerks who gave us uh, unbreakable encryption because it was such a gift to the world to have made it unbreakable in most cases, unless there's a, a, a real mistake, uh, uh, we're uh, we're not going to be able to decrypt it. Uh, so what do you do if somebody calls you in? Well, most of the time, um, if it's after the fact, uh, unless there was a mistake in the code, which nowadays is pretty rare, and when they're discovered, uh, of course, they're fixed uh, yeah, within they're hours. And um, m- most of the, the, the ransomware families now have very good encryption that's unbreakable. So your only option is to pay the ransom or move on. And, uh, you know, people are unfortunately choosing to pay ransoms, and I can, I can understand why. But you need to really focus more on, on defending against these sorts of attacks as opposed to uh, waiting until it happens. So if you had to – so that it's, 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 it's spurring more defense. Uh, you know, when people are stealing your secrets – this is what I learned at NSA uh, – uh, stealing secrets the, uh, is easy because people don't want to believe it. Um, and they ignore the evidence that their secrets are being stolen right up to the point where they say, oh, it's too hard, I give up. I'm, of course they're stealing my secrets. So there's never a point where you're fighting their tooth and nail to hang on to your secrets unless you're uh, a, a government or a, a financial institution. But if you come in one day and all your stuff is encrypted, you know you've been had, and it hurts right away, and that auto-inspire people to spend more on security than they have up to now. Yeah, there, there's no getting around it when not, not only is your data encrypted, but the systems are typically locked up, so you can't even move on with your operational uh, needs, whether, you know, I saw a story recently, a restaurant uh, here in the D.C. area uh, was taken down for two days because of a ransomware attack. They had to cancel all the reservations. They couldn't have business, right? So, so. I, I actually, I, I, I had a, a medical appointment that uh, had to get canceled because MedStar was uh, pwned uh, in that uh, in that attack on uh, the, the bank, uh, the hospital. So what we're seeing is that executives from across the board, the largest companies and the smallest, this is now their number one concern. So China, course, P-theft yeah, that, is, is of, in the background compared to this. Of course, because you, <laughs> the other thing about this is you can't hide it from your board. You can't hide it from your users. When you're done, you're uh, done. You're down. You're, and, and so uh, it's profound. Profoundly embarrassing. Is there somebody? Is there some way to identify the the numbers here? Uh, um, I mean, I assume that in some cases you could go and uh, find the the C2 machines and see the see the uh, the malware checking in to say, you know, any action? Do I need to decrypt this? Uh, um, so that there there's probably a way to get some idea what the volume is. Yeah, uh, there is, and uh, you can also one, – one thing about Bitcoins is while they're anonymous, they're not untraceable. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, the design of the system is that every transaction is out there for the open, so you can actually look at the Bitcoin addresses that the criminals have set up to receive the ransoms 
who's paying, well, not who's paying, but how much is, uh, money has been uh, uh, put into those, uh, into those wallets. So you can actually trace that. In the, a few cases where that's been done, um, uh, in the case of uh, CryptoLocker, for example, which is just one of the uh, dozens of malware families out there, the numbers have been on the order of almost $400 million uh, that have been tra- uh, tra- transmitted into the criminal bank accounts. So we're talking about really Whoa. big business. Whoa. So I, I, I do – I have always thought that um, as our forensic um, accounting gets better, uh, that um, it will be possible after you've been pwned like this, especially after you've paid the ransom, you get your system back and you can go through and you can, you can uh, reassemble the logs and know exactly how it happened. And my guess is that it's going to require – at a minimum, it requires a mistake. Well, it requires a, a vulnerability, which either was patched or wasn't. Uh, if it wasn't patched by the uh, software provider, then you can do, you can attribute big losses directly to that failure. Uh, and so that creates a question of liability for the software provider. Uh, it's also the case that if it's... Um, if it's ad, if it's ad generated, uh, uh, there's nothing you can do. You you went to the you went to the New York Times and you got uh, uh, encrypted. Uh, um, I'm guessing the entire ad tech ecosystem is at risk of liability if that happens because obviously they did something wrong because uh, the guy got through. Now it's also true you made a mistake. There's still got to be a vulnerability on your end, but I'm. Guessing if you come from a comparative negligence state, uh, state uh, nobody's going to say oh, it's 100% on you for not having done that patch. So there's a lot of opportunity for liability floating around in the forensic data. That's interesting, but the EULAs, of course, uh, uh, say that there's no warranties attached, right? Yeah, but you know, there's, there's always a public uh, uh, policy uh, uh, override on those, and um, as the consequences move from, oh, I had to reboot to I lost all my data and it cost me thousands of dollars, uh, courts get less and less sympathetic to the EULIS. No, that's, that's definitely interesting. Most most of these attacks get installed by either a user clicking on an attachment they shouldn't have mm-hmm. or through a, um, a web browser exploit that wasn't patched. Very few cases we're seeing actual zero days being used. It's usually vulnerabilities that are recent but um, so have not been So it's a watering patched. hole, ad tech kind of thing or – Or a link that directs you to a compromised website. Right. I, and and you can just spam people with that. You, uh, that's, oh. what we're, that's what they're doing. And uh, it's it's coming in at huge volumes now. All they need is one person to click because the other thing that this ransomware does is it spreads automatically through network shares. So if you stored a compromise, you know, all of the machines you're connected to within the corporate network would also get ransomware and would get encrypted all the file shares. So you could have very quick um, widespread impact. So th- that strikes me as a potential vulnerability for the for the malware. Uh, because we're getting more and more focused on watching activities across networks that, that are unusual and shouldn't be occurring. Uh, um, and again, of course, the uh, sanctimonious jerks who gave us unbreakable encryption would say, it's never suspicious to be encrypting stuff. But in fact, it is. If somebody suddenly starts encrypting data on another machine and another machine, um, is that a way of um, building monitoring, you know, uh, network monitoring systems that would uh, cauterize some of this effort? 
That, that's exactly what we're doing, actually, is we're looking yeah. at what, what it has to do to succeed, which is it's trying to destroy your backups. It's trying to go through your file yeah. system and encrypt those files. Anytime you see that, uh, it's not a user doing that. It's, a, it's an unknown binary that just got onto your system by, through a browser, through email. It should never be doing that, so you block it right away. Right. And uh, if you're relying on signatures, you're going to miss it because it's a completely new piece of malware. But if you're looking at what it's trying to do, um, you can see it right away. Oh, so we were already moving to heavy monitoring of network activity on the theory that we couldn't necessarily keep them out. Uh, and this just adds a um, urgency to doing it quickly at, at light speed and taking action as opposed to sending alerts. Yeah, if you send an alert, it's going to be too late because the data can be encrypted within minutes before anyone can do anything about it. So it has to be in line. It has to be automated as opposed to requiring a human response. It has to be at the machine as well. So monitoring network traffic in this particular case won't do you a whole lot because you're not seeing that encryption take place. It's happening on the system. So you have to be on every system and watching that. Oh, that's interesting. And I, I assume you could probably come up with a system that says uh, uh, you're not allowed to encrypt except with the company's keys, right? Uh, you, 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 wanna, you, you want all the encryption on your system to be uh, using the standard for the corporation and maybe the key because the corporation uh, doesn't trust its employees to with that kind of uh, uh, technology um, for the same reasons that Jim Comey doesn't trust uh, criminals with it. Um, so uh, that's a whole new kind of signature and set of parameters that have to be written for the, the network monitor. Yeah, we, we call them indicators of attack. So it's not an indicator of compromise, which is just a signature. It's a hash or it's a file name or it's a, it's a domain. It's literally looking at that behavioral profile of what is it trying to do. It's trying to destroy your backup. It's moving files around. It's overriding those files. It's reporting encryption key to the um, C2 server, uh, which is another point of vulnerability. If they can't do that, if they can't upload the key, they can't encrypt any data because they won't be able to ask for ransom because they won't have the key to decrypt it. Yeah, yeah. But you probably but, can't get in and give it a key like one 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 one, right? Uh, uh, though that would be fun. No, they generate completely randomly, and the encryption is really, really good. But one of the most interesting things we're seeing now is sort of the criminals that aren't good enough, they don't have that computer science uh, degree even first year to write that ransomware, they're actually sending uh, sort of fake scam emails saying that we've got your data, we've encrypted <laughs> it, uh, and, and and we'll publicize it unless you, you pay us a ransom when there's actually no indication that there's been any intrusion whatsoever. But they're sort of playing on this wave of rans- concerns about ransomware uh, to try to get money out of people, I and in some it. cases it's working. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, a uh, nice little website you got here. It'd be a shame if something's happened to it. Uh, uh, by, you know, some bozo who just, uh, you know, was, was, you know, got out of high school early and decided this was how he's going to make his mi- uh, money. Uh, so, uh, we talked about, uh, approaches, defensive approaches to, uh, uh, ransomware. What about these APT attacks on banks? And the only thing I can think of there uh, that I would have strategically said we should be doing is big honeypot networks that will allow you to catch people trying to move laterally in your system so that you know something's happening. Is, is, is that our best defense against that? I, I don't think so. The, the honeypots rarely work because um, in a lot of these cases, they, they know exactly what they're looking for. They'll hit the exact system that's doing this uh, swift uh, transaction as okay. opposed to some some of the honeypots you set up, particularly if, if there is indeed some uh, insider help um, there as well. But if you're actually monitoring those systems, when someone breaks in, they're inevitably going to 
uh, take actions uh, like getting escalated privileges, stealing legitimate credentials, which they need to do to access um, the Swift um, the Swift network. You can actually look for that activity and shut it down long before it occurs. So you don't need to wait for the transaction to happen before you can catch it. And we do that routinely. Right, uh, but. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean they're out of the system, right? Uh, well, th- then you have to remediate, right? right. And um, the remediation is usually the, the challenging part. You have to reset your passwords. You have to kick them out completely of the network. If you have full visibility, though, it becomes much easier. All right. All right. Dmitry Alperovich, this was great. I really appreciate your expertise. Uh, and uh, um, ransomware, it's the new black. I, uh, I'm looking forward. No, I'm not looking forward to hearing what it, what is 2017's version of ransomware because uh, I have a feeling it involves uh, uh, loss of power at home. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Stuart. Okay. Uh, and uh, that uh, I, I want to thank Roger, Roger Warren for his uh, uh, first appearance. We'll ask him back. Uh, and Michael Vadis uh, for his contribution as well. Um, if you're listening uh, and want to send us feedback on topics we should be covering, try cyber, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or, or leave us a good review. Uh, um, let me suggest five stars in the spirit of uh, Uber and Lyft uh, on iTunes. Tunes. Um, this has been episode 116 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we've got Patrick Gray of Risky Business. Uh, uh, we finally decided uh, to start uh, uh, advertising ourselves to each other's uh, um, uh, audience. Uh, Angelos Karamaitis, uh, who's a professor at Columbia uh, and also uh, um, uh, at uh, working at DARPA. He'll talk a little bit about some of the secu- computer security work that uh, he has been sponsoring at DARPA. Kevin Kelly, author of The Inevitable and a well-known futurist uh, who's been in the future business as long as I've been coming back to Steptoe and Johnson to practice law. Uh, and Congressman Will Hurd, uh, who is uh, uh, a uh, uh, chairman of a investigative subcommittee in the House uh, on cybersecurity who has done some remarkable work and has some remarkable background for that. Uh, so we hope you'll join us uh, for these and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.